Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, the book of Romans, chapter 6. Well, Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Have your Bibles out. You're sure to need them. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, said this, And the Torah came into the picture so that the offense would proliferate. But where sin proliferated, grace proliferated even more. In plain English, Paul is saying that the law of Moses was given so that sins would become even greater. But where sin increased, God's grace increased at an even greater amount. So God was always ahead of the curve. This is a very bold assertion. But Paul intends it is more than that. He intends this to be a fundamental doctrine that believers in Yeshua should adopt. However, because he is presenting his doctrines in typical Talmudic style, presenting his proposed regulation to a straw man, in essence, he leaves himself wide open for an assumption by that straw man that is radical to the point of absurdity. And that assumption is that if what Paul is asserting is true, then it follows that believers have just been given the green light to go ahead and sin more. Since apparently, the more we sin, the more God pours out His grace, and the more God pours out His grace, the more glory God receives from His worshipers. Therefore, it must be the duty of believers to sin more so that more adulation and glory goes to God well Paul's well aware that a Roman believer could take this assertion to an extreme and draw the same absurd conclusion as the straw man so he's got to remedy this that is what the opening two verses of Romans chapter 6 addresses and by the way, clearly he is concerned that the Roman believers indeed were predisposed to take what he was saying the wrong way. The receivers of the letter live in the capital of paganism and worldliness, Rome. And Paul has never met these believers and he can only surmise what they know, what they don't know about the gospel. He has no personal knowledge of what doctrines, good or bad, that they might have established among themselves. It might seem disjointed to us when looking at our modern Bibles that Paul would propose the doctrine in one chapter, then wait until the next chapter to explain himself. But it only seems that way because of the addition of chapter divisions and verse markers that we have that didn't exist in his day. And when he wrote the letter, it was just like we would write a letter, just one long narrative without any divisions or mark subdivisions. The Bible was not divided into chapters until the 13th century. Now before we read chapter 6, I think it is important that we discuss the word grace. In Hebrew, the word typically translated as grace is chen. Although sometimes the Hebrew word chesed is translated as grace in English Bibles, but it ought not to be. Chen means favor or grace. Chesed more means loving kindness. Now in Greek, the word that is almost always translated in our New Testaments into English as grace is charis. charis. So the Greek charis is attempting to translate the Hebrew chen. 
However, the Greek word charis seems to more or less combine the definitions of the Hebrew words chen and chesed. So charis can mean, Greek charis, can mean favor, grace, kindness, goodwill. can mean any of those things. There's nothing wrong with that. It just points out that Greek and Hebrew vocabularies don't always have a complete one-to-one relationship. That is, there are many Hebrew words that don't have a direct equivalent Greek word, and vice versa. So when translating Hebrew words or thoughts into Greek, sometimes the best that can be done is an approximation. Nonetheless, there's no reason to quibble over the choice of the Greek word charis to indicate grace in the way Paul meant it and in the way we all typically think of it. There really is no other Greek word they could have used. However, grace has a very broad meaning in the Bible and in English use. Grace involves the notion of favor. But you see, it's Christianity that has taken that word one step further and made the definition of grace as unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. That is because in English, favor can indeed be fully merited. It can be a tit-for-tat reciprocation. I did a favor for you, you do a favor for me. Favor can be something that is expected. Favor can be customary. Favor can simply indicate approval or support. It can indicate a preference, even an indulgence. I completely accept the notion that, biblically speaking, grace means unmerited favor. So long as we limit it to God bestowing it, upon humans. That's the context for it. Even so, we next have to ask ourselves an important question. What is the particular substance of God's grace? In other words, when God gives us grace, it involves Him doing something in particular for us. So for instance, God could show me grace by giving me the job I badly needed. He could show me grace by healing me from a serious illness. He could show a ministry grace by supplying a monetary need. So the term grace doesn't have any real applicable meaning for us until we connect it with a specific act or event. Does that make sense to you? So as we read Romans 6, be aware that when Paul speaks of God's grace, he means it as a kind of shorthand. When Paul speaks of grace, he means it in direct relation to some particular action that God did that Paul's thinking about. I'm going to say it again this way. Saying grace by itself simply means an unmerited favor from God. But what favor? Until we know the exact nature of the favor, we don't know what that act of grace involved. One more illustration, we'll move on. You walk into the front door and you say to your wife, Isn't that nice? Our neighbor just did us a wonderful favor. And then you turn and walk out of the room. Wives, what would be your first thought? First of all, bewildered, you have no idea what he's talking about. So you think, "Well, well, what favor did our neighbor do? Favor, grace must be connected to a particular identifiable action for it to have any real application or meaning to us. So when we say we are saved by grace, it has little application 
until we identify what that particular action of grace that God did to save us. Thus, as we read Romans chapter 6, and Paul repeatedly uses the term grace, charis, he has a specific action in mind that he has previously identified. And what is it that Paul says God did for sinners as an act of grace? He made us righteous. And how did he make us righteous? He just simply reached down from heaven and he righteoused us as a free gift. In Christianese, he justified us as an act of grace. Now we're going to come back to this to clarify a bit more as we go along in Romans chapter 6. Now we're going to walk very slowly and deliberately through chapter 6 as Paul makes numerous theological points that are critical for our understanding of our faith. So we're going to take as much time as needed to get all we can from it. And we'll work at defining some terms as we do. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1408. 1408. Romans chapter 6. So then, are we to say, well, let's keep on sinning so that there can be more grace? Heaven forbid. How can we who've died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that those of us who have been immersed into the Messiah Yeshua have been immersed into his death? Through immersion into his death, we were buried with him. So that just as through the glory of the Father, the Messiah was raised from the dead, likewise we too might live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will also be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was put to death on the execution stake with him so that the entire body of our sinful propensities might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For someone who has died has been cleared from sin. Now, since we died with the Messiah, we trust that he, we will also live with him. We know that the Messiah has been raised from the dead, never to die again. Death has no authority over him. For his death was a unique event that need not be repeated. But his life, he keeps on living for God. In the same way, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive for God by your union with the Messiah Yeshua. Therefore, do not let sin rule in your mortal bodies so that it makes you obey its desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness. On the contrary, offer yourselves to God as people alive from the dead and your various parts to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have authority over you because you are not under legalism but under grace. Therefore, what conclusion should we reach? Let's go on sinning because we're not under legalism but under grace? Heaven forbid! Don't you know that if you present yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, then of the one whom you are obeying, you are slaves? whether of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to be made, being made righteous. By God's grace, you who, you who were once slaves to sin obeyed from your heart the pattern of teaching to which you were exposed, and after you had been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using popular language because your human nature is so weak. For just as you used to offer your various parts as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led to more lawlessness, so now offer your various parts as slaves to righteousness, which leads to being made holy, set apart for God. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relationship to righteousness. But what benefit did you derive from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end result of those things was death. However, now, freed from sin and enslaved to God, you do get the benefit. It consists in being made holy, set apart for God, and its end result 
is eternal life. For what one earns from sin is death. But eternal life is what one receives as a free gift from God in union with the Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. So to begin chapter 6, Paul uses the typical Talmud method to deal with the issue of God granting more grace as people sin more. Now our straw man has come to the erroneous conclusion that is presented in verse 1, which is, well then so are we to say let's just keep on sinning so there can be more grace. Thus the straw man has created his own regulation that says that believers should be encouraged to keep on sinning so that more grace will abound. Paul obviously disagrees with that regulation and again in standard Talmud fashion he responds to it in verse 2. What's his answer? Heaven forbid. Now that the incorrect regulation has been stated and Paul reacts strongly against it, he states the correct regulation. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? And from there he fleshes out the details of his regulation and why his doctrine is the right doctrine. Now another of the main doctrines that Paul establishes is what he calls dying to sin. Now here's one of those phrases or terms that Christians often use which is not easy to understand or explain. For one reason, most Bible commentators don't seem to be able to come up with a single standard definition of it. With some commentators suggesting that Paul means dying to sin in a number of ways simultaneously. Great pains are made to connect dying to sin to Christ's death and sin to the law and so on. Now, I see the issue as becoming needlessly complicated within Christianity because we don't understand it in the Jewish cultural mindset of the first century. An understanding that was widespread and it was common knowledge among the Jewish people. So since Paul is a Jewish scholar, then we need to look at it the way he would have. And one of the most fundamental Jewish beliefs was, and still is, that all mankind is born with two inclinations. A good inclination, Yitzer HaTov, and an evil inclination, Yitzer HaRa. Now, since all humans then have two opposing God-given inclinations within us, it follows we will also have the freedom to choose to obey the one or the other. That is the Jewish definition of free will. And it's how it's made possible. In Jewish thought, a man is then mastered either by his good inclination or by his evil inclination. So a master-slave relationship is contemplated since slavery was a normal and visible part of life in the biblical era and the relationship of a slave to his master was well understood by everybody. Now in this Jewish belief the master is the inclination. The slave is the person. And this principle was encapsulated by a fundamental Jewish doctrine taught by the Pharisees called the doctrine of the, the two ways or the, even the, sometimes called the doctrine of the two masters. The essence held an almost identical doctrine that they titled the doctrine of the two spirits. They all go along the same lines of thought. And the bottom line to these doctrines is that man cannot be a slave that serves two masters. Thus a man cannot obey both his evil inclination and his good inclination simultaneously. He has to choose. Yeshua obviously believed this doctrine of philosophy and he taught it 
And he taught it in this way in Matthew 6.24. No one can be a slave to two masters. For he will either hate the first and love the second or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. Now in Yeshua's statement, God is personified as the master of the good inclination. Good inclination. And money, really the world system is the point, is personified as the master of the evil inclination. Now since it is the evil inclination that produces sin, then to walk in sin is to be a slave to the master of your evil inclination. Conversely, to die to sin is to acknowledge a change of masters. You cease being a slave to the evil inclination and instead become a slave to the good inclination. It really is no more difficult than that. And it's certainly what dying to sin would have meant to the Jews. So in verse 3, Paul begins by saying, Don't you know? So he is saying to the believers of Rome, he assumes that they already understand the ritual of baptism that has been practiced by Hebrews since time immemorial. Ritual bathing was fundamental and would have been required for any Gentile believer to congregate with any Jewish believer. So Paul is connecting the, the concept of baptism as a symbol of dying to sin with the death and with the death of Yeshua. Now what can be a little bit confusing is what the term baptized into Christ or immersed into Christ, what does that mean? Now the Greek word for baptize is baptizo. It was a rather common word for that era and it didn't always have a religious connotation. Rather, it was something that those in the cloth industry used. Baptizo simply means to immerse. But it also meant more than just dunking an object into a, to, to water or some kind of a liquid. In the cloth industry, it meant to immerse cloth in a vat of dye and then the cloth taking on the characteristics of the dye liquid. That is, the cloth absorbed the colored dye, and so it became that color. So when used in the religious realm, when Jews walked into a mikveh, a ritual bath, they took on the qualities of the living water that they were immersing in. Now, living water is pure. It cleanses. And when a believer immerses themselves into Christ, baptized into Christ, the idea is we are being immersed into his qualities which we then absorb into ourselves much like a cloth absorbs the colored liquid in a vat of dye. Thus, since one of Christ's qualities was that he died, then when we are baptized, we also absorb the quality of his death. Therefore, we can say, we have died with Christ. Now, of course, for believers in Yeshua, by Paul's day, baptism was also a ritual for gaining membership into the community of believers, very much as it's seen in Christianity in our time. This was not a new concept. The essence did the very same thing a long time before Yeshua was born. A person who wanted to join the Essene community had to be baptized into it. He had to be immersed into a mikveh, symbolizing absorbing the qualities of the essence which was needed to become part of the community. Now starting in verse 4, Paul starts to further nuance what he wants to communicate and frankly it starts to get rather complicated. 
I'm going to do my best to untangle it and make it a little more comprehensible. Paul says that through our immersion, our baptism into Christ's death, that is we both identify with Christ and we take on the qualities of his death, we are also buried with him. Death is one thing, burial is another thing. Burial signals the logical and culturally accepted way to indicate the end of life. It is also the official end of the old life. So a believer's baptism doesn't only identify us with Christ's death, but also with his burial. Thus, just as his old life was dead and buried, so is our old life, our life before salvation, dead and buried. Christ's death was by means of crucifixion. That has significance in itself. So believer's baptism identifies us as symbolically joining Christ on the cross as the means of death and also of joining him in the grave as the finality of death. Now understanding this different symbolism between death and burial is going to help us see what Paul is getting at as we move along in this chapter. Now the last half of verse 4 explains that the reason for our baptism and identification with Christ's death and burial is in order for us to be able to take the next step. And the next step is to identify with Christ's resurrection from the dead. So just as the Father resurrected Yeshua from the dead into a brand new life, so it will be for us. But it's important that we understand that this resurrection that believers experience is twofold. We are resurrected into a new quality of life, in the here and now. Second, in the future we will be bodily resurrected and we will enter into an entire new glorified physical state just as Christ did when he was resurrected. So the change we undergo upon baptism into Christ is partly immediate but it's also partly in the future. Paul's going to nuance that even more in chapter 7. So now a question. So far, Paul has been talking about baptism. Is baptism a must? Or is it optional? If it is a must, does this mean that until we are baptized, we are not dead to sin? We are not buried with Christ? And so we are still the old person, not yet living the now redeemed life of a believer. That is, what about a person who has professed Christ but for one reason or another has never been baptized, whether prevented by circumstances or declined by choice? Now, I may not be able to give you a satisfactory answer to, to that, but one thing's certain. In Romans chapter 6... And in other passages, for Paul, baptism, immersion, is absolutely the indispensable ritual moment for Gentiles or Jews when the finality of leaving our old sin life in Adam and entering our new righteous life in Christ occurs. When we go to a funeral... And especially if there's a graveside service and then the casket is, is, is lowered into the earth. There is a sense of closure that occurs. Even if that loved one has been deceased for a few days, the impact of death's finality doesn't usually begin until the funeral's over. Paul, baptism serves that same role for a new believer. It indicates finality and closure. But there's also another aspect to baptism to consider. Baptism is the initiation rite, if 
you would. Into the community of believers for a new believer. Faith in Christ is of course assumed before baptism occurs. So it seems that salvation happens independently from, before baptism. But salvation and its effects upon us are not all immediate. They're not all at once. There are great religious debates over the sequence and the timing of coming to faith. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When does that happen? The reception of spiritual gifts. When does that happen? And so on and so forth for a newly professed believer. But I think that without doubt, baptism to Paul is purely part of the salvation sequence. It's an important milestone and it must not be set aside. For Paul, baptism goes well beyond mere symbolism and it carries a real and tangible consequence with it. Interestingly, the consequences of baptism seem to be in the here and now in these present bodies more than upon our resurrection into new bodies. So too, therefore, does the lack of baptism carry real tangible consequences with it. But believers, I urge you, do not neglect being baptized even if you cannot quite imagine all of the true benefits from it. Paul insists that the benefits of baptism are there and they are real. But most importantly, baptism is a matter of obedience. Now in verse 6, Paul asserts that when our old self is put to death on the cross, that is, in baptism we have joined Christ up on that cross, that's the moment when everything that caused us to sin is laid waste. Now we're no longer slaves to sin. The old self means all of us, the whole person. Every aspect of who we were that represents all the effects of fallen man as caused by Adam theoretically no longer exists. In some mystical way, that old self, though, lingers on to be a challenge for us all, all of our days. These old bodies, so fragile and, and subject to time, will continue on until our death. We don't emerge from the cleansing waters of baptism with a new body. Death in Christ, just as resurrection in Christ, is a process. Some now, some later. So we must not be surprised when temptation at times still wins out. But the best news for us is we're no longer slaves to sin. From the Jewish view of Paul's time, no longer is the evil inclination our master to, we, to which we are slave. We have been liberated to be able to respond to God and to the good inclination within us. And why are we so free from sin? Paul says in verse 7, <laughs> it's because dead people can't sin. And since we have fully identified with Christ in his death, then of course we identify with him in his resurrection and his new life. Yet while Christ's death and resurrection is a completed happening for him, it's not that way for us. Yeshua is no longer burdened by a fragile body, nor the links and relationships with this world. But we, his worshipers, we still are. Not until we go to the grave will all those links and, and relationships end. Not until we are resurrected from the grave will our bodies be replaced with new, eternal, glorified bodies. So, we wait. 
And hopefully with each passing day, our new life and our identifying with Christ, it increases in its effects, even in this present world. But that's up to us. That is our obligation to see to it that it happens. Our forgiveness, our mercy, our compassion, our loving kindness towards our neighbor, none of this comes automatically with salvation. We have to work at it. We have to work at it. Just as we have to work at our obedience to God. On verse 12, Paul draws some conclusions from all that he's asserted up till now. It is that if we're dead to sin and we're alive to God through Christ, then this means that an entire new dynamic is possible for us and we need to be aware of it and we need to take advantage of it. So now that we have learned how we're, how we're to think, We've learned how to understand what Yeshua's death and resurrection means for believers on a spiritual level. Then the next step is to understand what physical, tangible actions we are to take as a result of this new reality. And the first thing a believer must do is to prevent sin from reigning in our lives. Before salvation, we were fairly helpless against the power of sin. But now, we have more control. And since the evil inclination is no longer our master, and we its slave, then we shouldn't behave as though it's still that way. Soldiers and others who have had horrific experiences, especially over long periods of time, can sometimes come away with what's called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And while it can manifest itself in a number of ways, in the end, the situation is that when the time comes that the victims of PTSD are no longer in those same circumstances, they're not necessarily in harm's way anymore, their subconscious minds still at times makes them feel as though they are. They can't reconcile their old dangerous situation with their new safer situation. The result can be behavior that just doesn't match the current conditions. But rather is more like a strong afterglow from the trauma of the past. As believers, we have been under the power of sin, under the mastery of evil inclinations since our birth. We were in that dangerous condition for so long, we're not quite sure how to act since the moment of our salvation when that whole situation changed. As believers, we can still carry the residue of our past sins with us. And so we behave out of instinct and knee-jerk reaction more than in relation to this new reality. Paul says that believers, thanks to salvation, now have a control, have a resource they simply didn't have before coming to faith because as a result we're no longer a pawn under the spell of an evil master or evil inclinations. We're now removed from our dangerous traumatic conditions. Thus we don't have to let sin have its way with us any longer. In fact, we must fight our lingering sinful tendencies as rebels fight against an evil tyrant when we feel ourselves slipping back to that, that behavior, that mindset of the old self, which in reality exists for us only as a memory. So Paul focuses his, his attention on our bodies. See, our bodies still belong to this present world. And they can be used either for godly things or for unrighteous things. It is through our bodies that we connect to this world. 
to our senses, to our extremities. So we must learn to control these bodies that were not made any different from our salvation. We must consciously control what our bodies see, what they hear, what they touch, what they say, what they eat, what they drink, what they do. It is through these mortal bodies where sin can have its most devastating effect because these bodies are essentially the holdover vestiges of our old self. But now we have the power of God to help us regain control for doing righteous things with these bodies instead of the unrighteous things we used to do. But make no mistake, I want to say it again, that responsibility lies with us. We can no longer offer the excuse, the devil made me do it. Oh, it's just my nature to do wrong. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer a slave to your evil inclination if you trust Christ. You are not. And anything inside of you that says you are is a lie. And how is all of this possible? Verse 14, Paul says something that has been interpreted and reinterpreted and reinterpreted over the centuries. It has led the church to come up with the nearly universal doctrine that the law is dead and gone. And yet some top Christian scholars continue to say that such cannot be the case because of what Paul said and because such a thought is such a radical departure from what Yeshua instructed. Well, let's take a look at verse 14. I want you to look at it in your Bibles, whatever you're using. But I'm also going to repeat it to you in just a very small sampling of different English translations in the complete Jewish Bible, which many of you have. For sin will not have authority over you because you are not under legalism, but under grace in the uh, New American Standard Bible. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. King James Version. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Now depending how, on how your ears are tuned, what you may have heard is that believers are no longer subject to the law of Moses, but are rather subject to grace. This is the primary New Testament verse where the doctrine of law versus grace is defined not, as not only a means to salvation, but whether the law of Moses has any relevance in the life of a believer. And I tell you that honest, good Bible scholars confess that this verse is very unclear and ambiguous in its meaning. So that is why various denominations will each take something different from it. Now let's see what conclusions we can reach here in the Seed of Abraham Torah class. Let's begin by noticing that of these three different versions of this verse that I read to you, one in particular is a poor translation. It's the King James Version. Another is what is called a dynamic translation, which means it is just an attempt to tell us the meaning rather than transliterating the Greek words to English. That's the complete Jewish Bible. Notice how the New American Standard says, under law, while the King James Version says, under the law. Clearly, the use of the term the law is nearly universally used in the Bible, Old Testament or New, to refer to the law of Moses. However, the law is an incorrect English translation. I'm not a Greek language expert, but I know enough to notice that the definite article the 
does not appear before the word law in the Greek manuscripts. And I consulted our ministry Greek language PhD, Rabbi Baruch. He agreed. There is no definite article present. So it is not under the law. It's not what it says. Rather, it is simply under law. Big difference. As this means that we are not to see this as meaning that Paul places the law of Moses in opposition to grace. But it does mean that we are to see some characteristic of law itself in opposition to some characteristic of grace. So the basic question that the church and and Bible scholars wrestle with is, is Paul saying that grace has suddenly appeared and it's replaced God's laws and regulations? Or does grace perhaps replace or mitigate some aspect, some consequence of laws and regulations? But the second question is, what does Paul have in mind when he speaks of grace? And as we learn to start off this lesson, we can't just speak of grace, taking it to mean unmerited favor, without knowing what act of favor God connected with it. Paul has made it clear that grace is not some indefinable divine favor that God has given to his worshipers that saves us. It's something very specific. It is that God favors us, he graces us, if you would, with righteousness. Or better, God favors us by means of him righteousing us, justifying us in more traditional terms, even though we don't deserve it. Now you know my position on this. At its most basic, whatever this verse may intend to convey, it cannot possibly mean that Paul is saying that an act of divine grace has abolished and replaced the law of Moses. Because if Paul does indeed mean that, he has placed himself in a direct confrontation with his Messiah, Yeshua. Because in Matthew 15, 17-19, Yeshua says he did not come to abolish the law of Moses, and that not even the tiniest part of the law is going to change, let alone vanish in its entirety until heaven and earth passes away. And in fact, he says, if anyone says he did, and so decides not to obey the law, then Christ will relegate him or her to the least position in his coming kingdom. But the people who agree with him that the law of Moses continues untouched and obeys that law, Christ says he will relegate as the greatest in his kingdom. Professor C.E.B. Cranfield's commentary on the book of Romans is thought by even the greatest modern Christian scholars to have no peer. His is the pinnacle. His is the gold standard for Roman commentaries. Here was what Cranfield says about verse 14. For you are not under the law, but under grace, is widely taken to mean that the Old Testament law has been superseded, its authority having been abolished for believers. This, it may be admitted, would be a plausible interpretation if this sentence stood by itself. But since it stands within a document, the letter to the Romans, which contains such things as Romans 3.31, 7.12, 14a, 8.4, and 13.8-10, through 10, and in which the law is referred to again and again as authoritative, such a reading is extremely unlikely. <coughs> the fact that under law is contrasted with under grace suggests the likelihood that Paul is here thinking not of the law in general, but of the law as condemning sinners. For since grace denotes God's undeserved favor, the natural opposite to grace would seem to be under God's disfavor or under his condemnation. And the suggestion that the meaning of the sentence is is that believers are no longer under God's condemnation pronounced by the law, 
but under his undeserved favor receives strong confirmation from Romans 8.1, which begins, so then there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ta-da! There you are. It's just laid out for us if we'll just read it and string it together. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, while I don't agree with Cranfield that what Paul is referencing in this verse is the law of Moses, for reasons I gave you moments ago, I do agree with him that it is usually assumed in institutional Christianity that the law of Moses is what is intended. But even under that assumption, it still doesn't pan out that Paul is saying that believers have no further obligation to obey the law of Moses because instead we're under grace. In exactly what capacity the law has relevance for believers today is an open debate. But it is not open for debate, especially using Paul's own words in other places in his letters to the Romans, that what he means is verse 4 is that the law is dead and gone for Christians. So it seems clear that what we as believers are not under is the curse of the law. The issue is not the law itself. The curse of the law comes from disobeying the law. Disobedience to the law is defined throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, as sinning. The curse that results from sinning is God's wrath, and God's wrath against us results in our eternal death. But the reason that believers who disobey the law are not subject to God's wrath or our eternal death is certainly not because God has just abolished the law, but rather because God has righteous we sinners by means of his undeserved favor upon us, his grace. Now remember, since chapter 1, Paul has framed this letter to the Romans as revolving around the problem of sinning and the consequences of God's wrath. That's what it's all been about. <coughs> and that wrath is not only applicable to the people of the law, Jews, who've broken it, but also it applies to Gentiles who did not have the law of Moses, but did have God's natural law that all humans have written within us, but broke it. So we're all subject to God's wrath. His solution, God's solution, He righteouses Jews and Gentiles who were trust in Yeshua's faithfulness to God His Father. So He does it. And this righteousness therefore exempts us from God's wrath. That is the proper doctrine. And we'll continue with Romans chapter 6 next time.